Hello and welcome to Securities by Lux Capital, a podcast and newsletter that explores science, technology, finance, and the human condition. I'm your host, Danny Crichton, and today we have a really special multi-part series on risk, bias, and decision-making, a cluster of critical skills that have interconnections across all the areas this podcast explores. Recently at Lux in New York City, Josh Wolf invited three celebrated decision and risk specialists for a lunch to discuss the latest academic research and empirical insights from the world of psychology and decision sciences. Our lunch included Danny Kahneman, who won the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on decision sciences. His book, Thinking Fast and Slow, has been a major bestseller and summarizes much of his work in the field. We also had Annie Duke, a World Series of Poker champion who researches cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her books, How to Decide and Thinking in Bets, have also been tremendous influential bestsellers, and she is also the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education. Also joining us was Michael Mobison, the head of consilient research at Counterpoint Global, and who has also taught finance for decades at Columbia University. His book, More Than You Know, is similarly a major bestseller. This is an edited four-part series from our lunch seminar, with each part covering one topic of the conversation for easier listening. In this first part, we discuss the concept of pre-mortems, an approach of looking at the outcome of our decision, and if it were to fail, why we think it would fail. It's an approach that's designed to overcome groupthink and avoid the fact that pessimists are really unpopular in group decision-making sessions. However, recent research has shown that they don't always help people and groups change their mind. We look at post-mortems, perspective hindsight, legitimizing dissent, self-serving bias, and pre-parade or backcasts to see how this tool can affect and improve decision-making given the most recent academic literature. Let's, let's actually talk about that. So for everybody's benefit, this is a crew, Danny Kahneman, Annie Duke, Michael Mobison. We've all known each other in separate ways. And then maybe three or four years ago, it started pre-COVID, uh, pre-pandemic. Yeah. Pre we got together and we all had lunch. And everybody brought with them, you know, their different mental models and toolkits. And we had a lot of fun. And we started doing this on the regular. Decision-making inside of investment firms, Danny has advised. And then I think in the process of advising firms and insurance companies and seeing things that led to the book Noise, which was the most recent, uh, about the inconsistency of decision-making. We should talk about that. Annie has really sculpted a lot of partnership and team thinking and frameworks about how to think in bets, how to think probabilistically. Uh, decision-making traps, much of which also I think was probably early inspired by Danny. And Michael has been doing this and probably one of the few voices in the public and to an extent private markets too, influencing arguably a generation. Michael is way more humble and hates when I do this kind of stuff, but of, of young practitioners that are thinking about their processes. We have adopted a combination of learning from Michael and from Danny and from Annie, things like pre-mortems, where we anticipate when we're having a decision, you know, what could go wrong? I've indoctrinated people internally with this quote that failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. So think about all the things that can go wrong and what things might be able to affect with time or talent or money thrown at it. That is something that most of the time when people are making decisions, particularly in the venture world, they're thinking about, you know, what can go right? How can this be a multi-billion dollar business? How could it be a fund maker? And I am always dour, sour, uh, raining on people's parade in the corner. What are some of the tactics? Premortem is one. Michael, would you explain what a premortem is for people? Well, I want to I want to talk about a pre. This is what I want to talk about. So this is, and I know Annie and I've talked about it. this before. You go. People cannot see this visual. When Michael started on Zoom, he had maybe a hundred books behind him. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it is then it grew to about like 150. But, but they, he's they, napping they, like he's being in, upon. Yeah, no, it's like it's consuming him. His, his physical space. It is consuming. Carry on. 
By the way, maybe I, I will describe a pre-mortem very quickly. So you are about to make a decision and you gather as a group and you pretend that you've made the decision and you launch yourself into the future. So let's say it's a year from now and you pretend this decision's turned out very badly. And then each person individually writes down the explanation for why this decision turned out poorly. And then we combine those decisions and we think about whether we should decide about it differently. So going through this, this idea was popularized by Gary Klein, who did an adversarial collaboration with Danny Kahneman, which was great, a great paper. Okay, so, so, so I know Danny's been very enthusiastic about it. So as far as I can gather, there are sort of two key components to this. One key component, and this is where Klein opened his HBR article, was this idea of prospective hindsight, which is based on some research done by Jay Russo and some collaborators many years ago. And the idea of prospective hindsight is the fact if you put yourself into the future and you pretend the actual outcome has occurred, then that, that sense of reality allows you to open up your mind and think about more alternatives. The second thing seems to be this idea of overcoming groupthink. We're barreling toward a decision on something. As we get closer to the sense that that decision is going to happen, then doubts get to be suppressed. In fact, people who are doubting it, are, you, know, you start to question their loyalty to the organization, so on and so forth. And so this creates a, an opportunity for those people to chime in, essentially, to, to counterbalance the argument. It appears this idea of prospective hindsight, to replicate the Russo et al. experiment, that has not replicated. So the idea that this future thing, looking back, creating more alternatives than we would have has, has not replicated. Now, this idea of you know, overcoming groupthink and so forth has. Now, the last thing I'll say before I turn it over to Annie is every time I talk about pre-mortems with investment organ, well, anybody, but certainly investment organizations, everybody loves this idea, but people love it, right? So somehow there's an appeal to this and people feel like they're getting something valuable from the exercise. But now I'm keen to understand what the mechanisms are, especially if, if half the argument is not replicating. Over at Wharton, we've been working on this problem for over a year now. Actually, we talked about the sort of first results at the last lunch that we had, which was, when was that, a year ago or so? So this is work that I've been doing with Linnea Gandhi, who's the lead researcher on this, who actually Danny knows very well, and Maurice Schweitzer. So we have tried to replicate the result, the Russo result. So let me just explain what that result is, is that if you sort of say to somebody, why don't you sort of think about the things that can go wrong? And that's the framing that you use versus imagine that something has gone wrong. Why did it happen? Okay, so, so the second would be a pre-mortem. The first is just a prompt to sort of imagine what might unfold. Basically, the finding that they had was 30% more reasons if you do it prospectively. The first thing is it's an old study, very small N. Your alarm bell should go off whenever you have a really small N because it means that it's not very many subjects. So we've tried to replicate this across a bazillion different scenarios for people like planning how they're going to stick to Lent, whatever they're giving up for Lent, to exercise goals, to predicting performance in like basketball game, like, predict, you know, I'm going to make predictions about how I'm going to do, predicting how you'll do on an anagram test. We have a, a toy example that actually I developed from an actual example from my book that's coming out in the fall, which is about public works projects. So we're asking people to do this, just like imagine what could happen or framing it prospectively. All, and we, all in anticipation of some performance towards some known goal. We have been unable to replicate the 30% more reasons. We just haven't been able to do it. And these are modern day studies, pre-registered, really large ends. You know, we're talking about running 2,000 people through these studies, and we've done it a bunch of different times. So we, we haven't been able to replicate it. 
Danny, I think your enthusiasm stemmed more from overcoming groupthink and making sure that those doubts that are suppressed rise to the surface rather than this idea of necessarily hinging on solely prospective hindsight, if I, if I understand your view. My, my hunch was that you have a group that are close to a decision, and it's based on the idea that pessimists are really unpopular. Yeah. And they're especially unpopular when a group is converging toward a decision. So you need to legitimize dissent. And this turns things around because the way that Gary frames it, it's going to reward ingenuity. You are trying to find a good failure. That will make you look clever. And it's that inversion that I think is very powerful. So I think that the cognitive thing is very minor, and I'm not surprised it doesn't replicate. But but the social thing looks really powerful. Let me just be clear. We, we're just now going to start seeing what happens in groups. There's a few things that we've found that make us kind of skeptical. In terms of groups and legitimizing dissent, the question is, does something about framing it as perspective hindsight help you do that? The things that we've been having trouble getting are behavior change. And again, we're doing this with individuals, not with groups. So let me just be really clear about that. We haven't gotten into the group work yet. We've been having trouble getting behavior change if you do a premortem. In other words, so people can sort of imagine what might go wrong, but we don't actually see them clicking on more links to do research or much changing of their plans. We also see that there's just as much self-serving bias if you work prospectively than if you work in perspective hindsight. And, and, and just define what self-serving bias is. This is that you believe you're going to succeed, that you're biased in yeah, your so, own favor. Which, which in our world of venture capital entrepreneurship is a prerequisite because yeah. you have to have over-optimism. Yeah, you so, want to be optimistic. Exactly. Yeah. So this has to do with when an outcome is poor, I attribute it to things that are external to me. Something happened to me. Mistakes were made, but not my fault. Yes. Yes. And when I have a success, I attribute it to things that are internal to me, things that I did, decisions that I made. So we know that this is a very strong bias in hindsight. So if I get in a car accident, I'll say it was the other person's fault. This is one from my child, right? So does poorly on a test and it's the teacher's fault and the test was too hard and everybody in the class agrees and so on and so forth. When he does well, he studied really hard and he was great. So that's thinking about a result that you've already gotten. It turns out, and this really shouldn't be that surprising, that if you say, imagine that you're taking a test in a week and you get the test back it's graded and you've done quite poorly. So that's a classic premortem. And you say, why? They say the test was too hard <laughs> because the teacher, the teacher put things on it that weren't taught in class. And also the teacher doesn't like me. And then when you say, imagine it's a week from now and you get the test back and you've done quite well, they say, well, I studied really hard and I'm very smart and I pay attention in class. That particular bias doesn't go away when you do things in perspective hindsight. So that's just... And, and so, so just to repeat that, after the event, success or failure, there's a narrative attribution. If it was success, I'm amazing. If not, it's all the other guy's fault. Mm -hmm. And if you do the pre-mortem and say, imagine that you succeeded or failed, the you same thing the holds. Same thing. Right. But my expectation, I always say when I talk about this, this will not change your mind about the plan. If you've made a decision and you're committed to the decision, you're still going to go through with it. So this will not change. But what it can do, you can find loopholes that you can close. You can find little things that you wouldn't find otherwise, so it's worthwhile. It's not, you should not expect 
that the pre-mortem would lead a group to change their decision. When we sit around the table and we make a decision, and I actually had this conversation on our Monday meeting just the other day, and I was like, okay, let's imagine all the things can go wrong if one of these things goes wrong. I'm okay if we took the process, we took the risk, we think that risk adjusted, we're underwriting it, and it happens, right? Then fine. I would be less okay and considered a process failure if we got surprised and didn't anticipate that thing, and then I would have said, okay, this is a failure. Now, the pro of that is we're thinking about the expansive set of possibilities of what might occur and how things can unfold. The con is if and when it does unfold, I've already prepared myself that, oh, we expected that that bad thing would occur, and so I don't have to update my priors. Um, it's really not about the priors, I think. It really is about changing your plans. That's to me, is the value of the postmortem. It's about closing things. It's about, oh, this could happen. We haven't covered the left side. I mean, that's basically what happens in the pre-mortem. And, and you can see that in a military context. Where could they come from? And then, you know, oh, we hadn't thought. You take the perspective of the other side, if it's a context, or, and, and you see more things. I always love the DARPA line. I think it was the DARPA line. Their mission is to create and prevent strategic surprise. They want to surprise the other side because obviously it's an offensive advantage and they want to ensure that they are not surprised. In the work that we do on premortems, we're trying to address the things that people think that they do, right? Not that Danny Kahneman thinks they do, who's a, a much more realist about this, but that people who are using premortems on a daily basis believe that they do. So the reason why we're looking at the self-serving bias liter you know, literature and seeing if, it, if you get that same effect prospectively is that that's showing that, well, here's a bias that it doesn't, definitely doesn't get rid of. If you're going to do this, you need to specifically ask about what could go wrong that's within your control and what can go wrong that's not in your control because left to your own devices, you're going to be sort of imagining not that your investment process was bad, but that something unlucky happened to you, just as an example, right? So it's like there's certain things that you can do in terms of changing the way that you do the premortem that helps to dampen that bias, but not the premortem itself. We were trying to look at, like, does it make you change your decision, which you don't believe it does, but most people do. So we're just trying to show it doesn't really get you to change your decision. It doesn't necessarily get you to do more research. Now, when it's paired with a pre-commitment contract, then you can start to get these changes in terms of behaving differently toward what you find out. That pairing, I think, is really powerful. And the thing that we have found that it actually does do really well is it helps to reduce overconfidence, which is actually huge. Not in the sense that it brings you below a control, but in the sense that it doesn't bump it up. And what I think is really interesting is we've done what's called a pre-parade or a backcast. You know, one group doing a pre-parade or a backcast, which is the opposite of a pre-mortem. I did really well on the test. The teacher has given it back to me. What happened? Why did that happen? So that, that's a pre-parade. And what we find is that pre-parades massively increase overconfidence. So they cause you to be really poorly calibrated to what is true of the world. Whereas when you do a pre-mortem, it keeps your confidence at bay as if you hadn't really done anything going into it. And sometimes depending on the task, it will actually bring it below control levels. Hmm. And it depends a little bit on whether you have control over the outcome or not. But it actually does help with that particular bias and really significantly so. If you said the distinction between just looking at scenarios and outcomes and a pre-mortem, is it the pre-mortem we somehow pretend we're in the future and that the event has happened and now we look back, right? So why, is it, why do I need the time travel? Danny, if it's not a cognitive thing, why do I need time travel? Uh, why don't I just say stop, 
everybody's in the room. You know, we're going to give voice to the people who might be dissenters, write it down privately. So we're not going to talk about it. Just write it all down. Why do I need this future to present this thing is, versus present to future? This thing? is really interesting because it links to the topic of adversarial collaboration. One of the things that I talk about, and I call it the 15 IQ point, which is what happens to a researcher when they find that a hypothesis that they had was falsified by the data. And it's instantaneous. You see why it happened. And you couldn't see it earlier. And I think I understand why. And this is that when I'm in the current state, I have my theory, and you say this particular result which violates my theory, I simply can't see how you can get there. You know, you don't get there from here. But now it's happened. And now all I have to do is tweak my theory so that it's compatible with that. That turns out to be quite easy, but you're not going to do it unless you're forced. And this is really powerful. So, so in that case, science as an institution has a forcing function of peer review and somebody basically reducing your status and increasing their status by saying you're wrong. And the avoidance of wanting to be, uh, the avoidance of not wanting to be wrong induces you to want to be more correct or less wrong. And so you're more likely to change your mind because there's, there's punishment. There's a stick to your status if you didn't change your mind. As Danny Kahneman pointed out, the point of using tools like pre-mortems is ultimately to change your mind, to choose a different direction for your decision than you might have otherwise chosen. Yet pre-mortems on their own may not be sufficient without other tools like pre-commitment contracts as Annie's research has found, or as Josh pointed out, Systems like peer review that create adversarial collaboration that forces decisions to improve extrinsically outside of our own biases. Nonetheless, they are a useful tool because no failure should be unimagined. Imagining failure isn't an excuse not to make a decision, it's a method to reduce strategic surprise.